This podcast is part of the Christian Geek Central Network at ChristianGeekCentral.com. Episode 364, Strangers and Aliens OTR, featuring X-1, Cold Equations, and a whole bunch of other stuff, including the Netflix original movie, Stowaway. Attention, all true believers. Want to get away from the room? Uh, anyone on the air? Hello? Hello? Uh, anyone on the air? Hello? Hello? all is ready, I throw this switch. Hey, I'm Ben, Ben Avery, and welcome to another episode of Strangers and Aliens. And when I say another episode of Strangers and Aliens, this is not just another episode. It's no. it's just another episode of old time radio. That's <laughs> so, right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's me here with uh, Steve. Steve, how you doing? Good. Good. Pretty good. Steve McDonald. So what we do with a old time radio episode is we talk about... Uh, science fiction story we play a science fiction old time radio episode and we kind of dive into some of the theological implications and some of the philosophical implications and some of the pop cultural implications and so for this episode it actually didn't come out of me listening to old time radio it actually came out of me watching a movie called stowaway which had some connections to old time radio. And so this episode will also have a little bit of a review of the movie stowaway, but it will be spoiler free. Now you'll be listening to the X minus one episode cold equations, which does have an ending, but spoiler, the ending of the movie is not, the same as the ending of cold equations because it's not a direct adaptation it's just definitely inspired by right so yeah so cold equations steve uh let's talk about where that story came from then because this is this is a classic in fact um a couple summer no it was last summer i was on audible and used one of my Audible credits to get an an anthology book called the Science Fiction Hall of Fame, uh-huh. which was uh, oh, was it tied into the Nebula Awards? I think because it was the Science Fiction Writers Guild, and they had been giving out awards every year for the best in science fiction for that year, and they decided, hey, what about before 1960? And so right. what they did was they did this whole voting thing where they voted for short stories, novellas and novels. And then they did a collection uh, volume. One was a whole slew of short stories. Volume two was so long that they actually divided it into two volumes instead of um, deciding, well, we can only do half of what we wanted. Let's make it two volumes. And then um, so there's volume one, there's volume two a and volume two B. 
But if you ever are looking for something that's just big and meaty and there's lots to it and you really want to get a bang for your buck with your audible credit, the or if you want to get a bang for your buck with just getting a book, um, the Science Fiction Hall of Fame, Volume 1, Volume 2A and Volume 2B, it is great stuff voted on by science fiction writers and and people, I mean, they know their stuff and awesome. there's some really good stuff in there. And this story was in there. And so that was, I, I had the chance to listen to this original story. And as I was listening to it, I was like, I, this story is familiar to me. And one of the reasons it was familiar to me was because it was in X minus one. And I'm pretty sure I also heard the beyond tomorrow version of it. So X minus one was from the early fifties. Uh, science fiction anthology show and beyond tomorrow was from the late fifties, uh, another science fiction anthology show. And so that's this story. Then it's just kind of one of the greats and a very famous story written by a dude named Tom Godwin, who, mm -hmm. if you've never heard of him, um, you, you probably haven't heard of him. If you have heard of him, it's probably because of this story. Really? <laughs> Well, he actually did uh, some other stuff too. He but, did, yeah, but he's he's most well known for this story. I looked at his the list of his things that he's done before, and nothing was familiar to me. Now, just by title, I should say. But he wrote a book called "The Space Barbarians" that I absolutely want to read because that sounds fantastic. <laughs> it's like Conan in space or something. Well, that's what I'm hoping for. So, yeah. But he wrote for a lot of the science fiction magazines, he wrote for Astounding and for Analog and for um, Universe. Yeah. And if amazing. Yeah. So he, he did a lot of that kind of thing. And but this is his most famous story by by far. And yeah, it's been turned into a Twilight Zone episode, which I haven't seen. And it's been turned into two radio shows, as we've talked about. Mm -hmm. Um and I think it was even made into a movie, like an actual movie that was based on the story. Um, yeah, not, not, not Stowaway. Not, not great. Oh, you've seen it? I've seen parts of it. And it's one of those, it's like, it's like the, the movies that you saw in, in like the 1980s and 90s. That's just like low budget science fiction. And you just, sometimes you just can't get over. Well, it was a sci-fi channel budget. movie. Yeah. So, I mean that, that right there. <laughs> says Puts something the nail in the coffin. <laughs> well, it's interesting how the sci-fi channel got known for that because I don't think that they necessarily were producing these things because like, I know for the movie man thing, right. That was, I think Lionsgate trying to capitalize on blade and X-Men and Spider-Man. And so they're like, we right. have rights to a Marvel character and then they make the movie <laughs> and the movie is not great. And the money people, I think, were looking at the movie and saying, we can't put this in theaters. If we put this in theaters, it's it's going to be one of those where it's famous for how much money it didn't get. Yeah. And so then they sell it to sci-fi, sci-fi, and like Netflix now, honestly, I think. Sci-fi slaps their name on it as a producer. And and so it becomes a sci-fi, you know, sci-fi channel original or whatever. Right. Um, and that's what happened with Man-Thing is it was a sci-fi channel original and it was not great at all. It's going to do, but also the, there was actually a new version of it done by, Oh, who did it? I should have had this. 
Uh, let's see. Dust. This is actually a, a pretty well done version of it. It really does follow along pretty well with the actual story. It's, it's 12 minutes long. So when anyone really interested in the actual story, here's a 12 minute version of it. The, uh, the version we're going to listen to with uh, X minus one is pretty close to the original story. The one difference is the relationship of the woman to, and to the person who's the reason why she's doing what she's doing. Right. Um, and we'll talk about that after we play, after we play the episode. Uh, but one of the things that this story called equations caused me then to think about is just that whole thing of, I call it the trolley conundrum. I don't think that's uh-huh. the actual phrasing of what, what it is. I think it might be the trolley problem or something like that, but it's where you have to choose between basically the needs of the many outweighing the needs of, of the one or yeah. the few as, uh, yeah. as it gets, uh, expanded on in Star Trek and then gets flipped in Star Trek too, because that's why, or in Star Trek as well, because in Star Trek three <laughs> in Star Trek two is the one. Okay. I'm making things even more confusing, but in Star Trek also, three, Kirk, Kirk flips it on its head and says, yeah. sometimes the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many. Right. And, and I actually think that there's some value to that, that I think maybe we can talk about uh, after we're done listening to the, uh, the X minus one old time radio episode. Yep. But, um, yeah. So the needs of the one outweighing the needs or the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few. Um, and there's, I think there's some valuable conversations that can come of this. And I'd like to see if you had written this story and had free reign to, uh, to, to save the person, um, would you have, and how would you do it? Well, that's something we need to talk about because yeah. actually, I think we should probably just play the story, right? Yeah. And, and just yeah. get that out of the way mm-hmm. so that we can um, talk about the thing. Uh, so uh, like I said, this is the X minus one adaptation of the story. This is from, I believe, 1951. And it's the 15th episode in that series. The th- cool thing about X minus one is that because it was actually a follow-up to dimension X. They used a lot of the dimension X scripts for their earlier episodes, but they were always some, sometimes original, but then they would also use famous authors stories and like this famous story here, but X minus one, when it started, kind of hit the ground running really strong. And, mm-hmm. and, and part of that was because, like I said, the dimension X had already kind of paved the way right. and they were able to kind of just build on that. And Dimension X is the one that came out in 51. X minus one ran from 55 to 57. So this was a 55 episode. And X minus one is one of my favorite all-time radio shows oh, yeah. of all yeah. time. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's X minus one, there's box 13, there's mm-hmm. the six shooter. So basically... I was a communist for the FBI. Well, uh, basically, if there's a number of the title, it's one of my favorites. <laughs> nice. Um, but uh, and and what's nice about all of those is they those are something you could easily find all of the episodes online yeah. and listen to all of them. Like, there's twenty some six shooter and you know, there's a good handful of box thirteen. Uh, the third man, third man, the third <laughs> yeah. man. That's another yep. one that's just it was one year and yep, uh, episodes, and also has a number in the title so. That's right. That's uh, Orson Welles re- yep. re, uh, redoing his third man character from the third man movie. Of course, they had so to awesome, they had to explain 
that uh yes because in the movie he dies and so it's kind of like that was the shot that killed harry lime yeah (laughs) but before (laughs) but before that happened uh you're yeah so basically the third man radio show was a prequel series yes but it was orson welles i mean yeah amazingly it was orson welles i mean they got Orson Welles to do an entire year of all time radio during the the time where he was, you know, doing his movie stuff almost exclusively. Yeah, but you know what's interesting about that is just how much they use radio stuff to promote movies and to promote uh-huh. uh TV shows. So you have like the um Benny uh Jack Benny show. Jack Benny. Yeah. You have Jack Benny show. He's doing a TV show and a radio show. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're both kind of promoting each other. Yeah. Um, you also had uh, Lux radio theater where they would bring in the actors and actresses from the actual movies. Yeah. To do the parts of the movie and do the movie for a radio audience. Yeah. Hour long versions of your favorite movies. It's awesome. And, and then they would also say, okay, so what, what's what are you doing right now well i i was i just finished this wonderful picture with you know and then mm-hmm. they were using that uh to promote you know these these movies and things like that so i mean having orson wells on the on the radio every week was a great way to promote whatever it is else that he was doing so. yeah definitely and x minus one was one way that they were promoting uh science fiction magazines uh-huh. And uh, this episode, I don't believe, was sponsored by – I don't think they had switched over to Galaxy yet. I think this was still when they were sponsored by Astounding, I think. Possible. I'm not sure. I never really paid too much attention about the the sponsoring of it. But, yeah, it's, it's – uh... And so a lot of the stories then came actually from – you know, back issues of, of the magazine of the, uh-huh. that was promoting or producing it. So, yeah. And some of them were really like prescient, you know, some of them, I mean, just like good science fiction does, it, it looks at things, you know, as if the, it could happen in the future. So you had like, you know, a logic named Joe, which was basically the internet. Um, but it's in 1955, you know, <laughs> and looking at the different foibles and different problems that something like that would have um, in that in that time, in that era. So, you know, it's yeah. some really neat things. And they also were, you know, early versions of things that are just common tropes now. Like we had already one of our episodes of OTR was already about universe, which uh-huh. was uh, that generation ship thing. Um, the first episode. I do not remember the title of it, but it really is a very much, it feels like a forerunner of Star Trek. The first one was, and the moon be still as bright by Ray Bradbury. That actually, well, actually, uh, that might not have actually been the first episode. Uh, that's what, uh, that's what Wikipedia is telling us. I think yeah, you're, you're talking about no contact. I'm talking about no contact as yeah. the first actually aired episode. Um, the movie still is bright might've actually been done as a proof of concept that wasn't actually played until a later episode. Right. Point being, it feels like a Star Trek episode and it actually, when it gets into this idea of a barrier in space, uh, it doesn't just feel like a Star Trek episode with, 
you know, a crew and a captain, but like they're going through this barrier, you know? And, yeah. But then that Definitely. one has an incredible, awesome twist that mm-hmm. I, I just love so much that. And a lot of them do. I mean, this is early science fiction where they're coming up with the, you know, the twists before, you know, Hollywood got a hold of, of it and turned into uh, t- turned it into a machine and Star Wars popularized it. And then you have, you know, 24 different versions of Star Wars and things like that. So, you know, they're playing with things out of the toy box that, you know, very few people had played with before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, OK, let's let's go ahead. Then we'll play the episode and uh, and then we will talk about just some of the conversational ideas that come out of that. And also we'll talk about the movie Stowaway and. So again, some of the uh, kind of review that that movie, which is on Netflix, it was one that probably would have been in theaters, but because of COVID and because of the current situation with theaters, didn't get there. And and then we'll close it down. All right. All right. Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two. X minus one, fire. From the far horizons of the unknown come transcribed tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future, adventures in which you'll live in a million could-be years on a thousand maybe worlds. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Street and Smith, publishers of astounding science fiction, presents... X minus one... Tonight's story, Cold Equations. There is no margin of safety along the rim of a frontier. There can't be any until the way is made for those who come later. Until then, the penalty for mistakes is a grim one. The laws of physical nature operate with irrevocable certainty, with no room for mercy, kindness, or sentimentality. In space, life becomes a cold equation, and the equal sign is often followed by death. I know. I'm the pilot of an EDS. Come in. You sent for me, Commander? Yes. Sit down, Barton. We just got an ED from the Territorial Space Station on Woden. Uh, Woden. That's in the Crab Nebula, isn't it? That's right. There are two exploration parties there on Manning's Continent. Eight men each. Mm-hmm. They've got cala fever in one of them and no serum. Oh, and I thought this was going to be a nice, quiet passenger run. Computers are working out your payload and your course right now. In exactly ten minutes, we'll drop in a normal space and launch your ship. I'll get her ready. One thing. What's that? Woden is at the maximum pay limit for an EDS. Figuring the weight of the serum, we'll be able to give you just enough fuel to land on Manning's continent if you make it the first pass. Otherwise, you'll burn out in midair. Mm-hmm. Standard procedure. Report to launching control. Right. Good luck, Barton. Thanks. Oh, uh, by the way. Yes? When can I expect to be picked up? We'll make a stop on the run back to Earth sometime next year. You'll be notified by radio. Okay. 
Sorry, we can't make it sooner. <laughs> That's what happens when you sign on for EDS work. I'll see you next year, Commander. Down in the belly of the Stardust, the crew was working like beavers to get the EDS, the emergency dispatch ship, ready. Mechanics and technicians were swarming all over the place. Girls in inspector's uniforms were checking the gauges in the supply cabinet. Nine minutes later, the exact course was in the computer. The serum was stowed in my supply cabinet closet, and little EDS 4G3 was ready to be born into space. Martin? Yes, sir? 30 seconds to blast off. All set? All set. I'm turning you over to traffic. Ready. Traffic control. Come in, EDS 4G3. Ready. 20 seconds. Lock open. 15 seconds. Space drive on. Space drive on. 10 seconds. Gravity neutralizer on. Neutralizer on. 5 seconds. 4, 3, 2, one, blast off! I don't remember how long it was afterwards that I first noticed something wrong. Maybe an hour, maybe two. There was nothing to show it except the needle and the heat gauge. It was on zero when we left the stardust, and now I noticed that it had crept up toward the 30 mark. That meant something inside the ship was radiating heat. That something was in the supply closet, and it was alive. All right, come out. Whoever or whatever you are, if you don't come out in five seconds, I'm going to blast you. One, two. Well, I'll be... Hello, I'm Marilyn Lee Cross. What are you doing in there? I'm a stowaway. Oh, my... What's the matter? Do I have to pay a fine or something? What are you doing here? I wanted to see my husband. Who's your husband? He's with the government survey crew on Woden. I haven't seen him since he left Earth four years ago. Okay. But what made you hide in my EDS? I have a job waiting for me on Mimir. But I heard you were going to Woden and there was plenty of room, so I hid. Oh, I knew I'd be breaking some kind of rule, but uh, what's one little rule? What's one little rule? H amount of fuel will power an EDS with a mass of M safely to its destination. H amount of fuel will not power an EDS with a mass of M plus X safely to its destination. Well, how could she be expected to know? She was 5'2 with brown curly hair and the faint sweet smell of perfume. She was 5'2 and she smelled like apple blossoms. And her name was X in an equation that would have to be balanced. Stardust. Come in, EDS. Come in. This is Barton, emergency dispatch pilot, 4G3. Go ahead. Give me Commander Delhart. What's the message, EDS? I have to consult Commander Delhart. The commander is busy. Listen, you squirt. Give me Commander Delhart. One moment, 4G3. Commander Delhart, emergency message from EGS, 4G3. This is Delhart. What is it? At 0800 hours, I discovered a stowaway aboard my ship. A stowaway? Yes, sir. Well, 
You notified ship's records? Not yet, sir. You know the regulations as well as I do. Of course I know the regulations. That's why I'm calling. Martin, what's going on? Sir, this is a girl. A young woman. Oh. She wanted to see her husband on Woden. She didn't know what she was doing. I see. I wondered, sir, maybe the cruiser could change course or something? I'm afraid not. We're hundreds of light years apart now. We have a limited fuel supply ourselves with 900 passengers. Is there any chance? No. Okay, Skipper. Better get the information to ship's records. Okay. Martin. Skipper. I'm sorry. Yeah, sure. Cut our acceleration, didn't you? Yes. Why? Well, save fuel for a while. How did you manage to stow away? Well, I was taking a language lesson in memories from a girl in the inspection corps. The order came in for your trip, and I just went along on an impulse. It was easy. I'll be a model prisoner, I promise. Well, if you were only a thief or a spy, it would make it easier. Make what easier? Uh, forget it. Why couldn't she have been somebody with some ulterior motive, a fugitive, hoping to lose himself in a raw new world, a, a, a crackpot with a mission? Why did she have to be a woman, a beautiful, kind, trusting woman? Stardust. Barton, EDS, 4G3. Go ahead, 4G3. Identify a stowaway. Uh, give me your identification disk, Miss Cross. Here. Why? Well, it's for ship's records. Uh, identification number T-8374. One moment. This is for the gray card, of course. Yes. I'll need the time of... I'll tell you later. That's highly irregular. Then we'll do it in a highly irregular manner. The subject is a young woman. She's listening to everything that's said. Are you capable of understanding that? Oh. Go ahead, 43. Number T-8374... Dash Y54. Name, Marilyn Lee Cross. Female, married. Born July 7th, 2160. Good Lord, you're only a child. <laughs> uh, height, five feet, two inches. Weight, 110. Hair, brown. Eyes, blue. Complexion, light. Blood type, O. Original destination, Port City, Mimir. Uh, listen, I'll call you back later. Look, miss. Marilyn. Look, Marilyn. I, I guess you don't know what you got yourself into here. Well, it's like this. This ship is carrying Cala fever serum to the survey group on Woden. Yes. Their supply was wrecked in a tornado. The fever is always fatal unless the serum is given in the first 48 hours. Now, these little ships have exactly enough fuel to reach their destination. If you stay aboard her, your added weight will cause it to use up all its fuel before it can land. What happens then? We crash. You die, I die, and six fever victims on Woden die. Can't they send out another ship to meet us? There are no ships to send. Well, I... Oh, no. Oh, no, you, you couldn't do that. That's how it has to be. But that's crazy. I haven't done anything. I, I haven't hurt anybody. I'm sorry. I, I, I should have told you before, but I, I wanted to make sure there was no other way. 
going to make me leave this ship. That's how it is. But I'll die. I'll explode. I'll be like those horrible pictures about... Try to understand. I do understand. You're going to kill me and I didn't do anything. I know you didn't. I know you didn't. That has nothing to do with it. It has everything to do with it. Nobody just dies like that for no reason. Oh, listen. Maybe there are other cruisers. Cruisers you don't know about. Maybe the radio. Maybe it... Now, listen to me. It's different here. Different from anything you've ever known. On Woden, there are 16 men. 16 men on an entire world. They're fighting. Fighting an alien environment. The environment fights back. You can only make a mistake once. I made a mistake. Yes. There's no hope. Absolutely none. You'll have to be put out of the ship. It was better so. With the going of all hope would go the fear. Then would come the resignation. She needed time, and there was so little. EDS. Starship to EDS. Need pertinent data. All right, Starship. When do you expect to complete your report? I... I need a computer check. I'll give you statistics. Statistics. This is EDS 4G3. I'm intersecting course vector 7.3 at 0831. Deceleration 1750. Weight one ton. I would like to stay at point 10 as long as the computers allow. Will you give them the question? Check. I'll call you back. We wouldn't have long to wait. The new factors would be fed into the steel maw of the computer bank and the electrical impulses would go through the complex circuits. Here and there, a relay would click, a tiny cog turn over. But it would be the current, formless, mindless, invisible, which would determine with utter precision how long the pale young girl beside me would live. Five little segments of metal in the second bank would trip against an inked ribbon and the machine would spit out the answer. You will resume deceleration at 1910. It was 1810 when he spoke. One hour. She has one hour to live. That's it. All I did was hide in a closet. And now you tell me I have to die. I don't believe it. You might as well get used to it. If this, this happened back on Earth, a thousand ships would fill the sky. The whole world would know about it. They'd do everything to save me. This isn't Earth. It was such a big dream. Jerry and I separated almost five years ago. We were too young. And I was going to see him to try to make everything all right again. I... Are you married? I was. Oh? She ran off with some guy in the weather service. Do you still think about it? I don't let myself. Where is she? Back on Earth. Look, if you don't mind, I'd just as soon talk about something else. Okay. What do you do when you've got an hour to live? What do you talk about? What's Jerry like? Jerry? Oh, he's a funny guy. When he found out, I, I mean about the other fella. He didn't get mad. He, 
cried. That was all he felt, sadness. So you walked all over him. Oh, I thought I wanted him to get mad at me, to, to be jealous. And now? I've been thinking about him for five years. So when I heard this ship was bound for Woden and I knew Jerry was there, I stowed away. I didn't know about the fuel. I didn't know this would happen to me. She had violated a man-made law that said keep out. The penalty was not of man's making or desire. It was not a penalty men could revoke. H amount of fuel will power an EDS with a mass of M safely to its destination. The time was 1830. 40 minutes. It was beginning to get me. A space frontier is a rough place, and I'd seen a hundred men die since I left Earth. But this was different. I watched her as she wrote a message to her folks. I watched her as she fought her way through the black horror of fear toward the calm gray of acceptance. And then there it was on the view screen, the planet Woden, a red ball enshrouded in the blue haze of its atmosphere, swimming in space against the background of star-sprinkled blackness. The chronometer on the instrument panel said 1845. Listen, we're in radio range of Woden now. I mean, would you want me to try to contact your husband? Jerry? It'd mean... He would know you're going to die. There'd be nothing anyone can do. Yes. I would like to talk to him. Do you think we can? Well, the planet is turning. If his group is on the side facing us, we might be able to reach him. Oh, try. All right. Hello. Hello, Woden. EDS to government survey group. Can you hear me? Come in, Woden. <laughs> they may not be monitoring. Hello. 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 Identify yourself, please. This is Government Survey Group 1 on Planet Woden. This is John Barton, EDS pilot. You have the serum? Yes. How bad is it? One man died last night. Six have the fever. How long will it take to... I start deceleration at 1910 hours. I should be able to land at 1930. Thank God. Uh, look, do you have a Gerald Cross in charge of the group? Commander Cross? Yes, we do. Could I speak to him? He isn't here. He's out with the survey team. Well, when do you expect him? Can't say. How do you read me? How much time do we have left for communication? Less than 15 minutes. All right. If Commander Cross comes back before we lose radio contact, will you have him buzz me? It's important. Okay, EDS. I'll keep the set open. Check. The minutes passed like small bits of eternity. On the view screen, I could see Manning's continents sprawled like a gigantic hourglass in the eastern sea. There was a thin line of shadow where it was beginning to disappear as the planet turned on its axis. I looked at the pale woman next to me, and I thought of another woman long ago who'd sat next to me and cried because I wouldn't try to understand. What had she written in those letters back home? What would they think of the faceless, unknown pilot who'd sent her to her death? What would I think of myself alone nights, reliving this voyage? cold, isn't it? I'll turn up the thermostat. Nothing from Jerry? We have about two minutes of radio contact left. Maybe it's better. I mean, suppose it were you and your wife tried to call you. How would you feel? I don't know. Do you ever hear from her? I got a letter about a year ago. 
I tore it up. That was foolish. Yeah, it was. Life is so terribly short to be wandering around alone. Well, I... I... Wait a second, we're getting something. How much time before... Before I have to leave the ship? About ten minutes. Hello, EDS. Hello, EDS. Come in. Come in. EDS. This is Woden. I have Commander Cross. All right, go ahead. Hello, this is Commander Cross. Jerry Cross? Yes. I have someone for you. Go ahead. Hello. Jerry? Hello? Jerry. Who is it? It's me, Marilyn. Marilyn? I wanted to see you again. I stowed away on the EDS. You what? But Marilyn... It doesn't matter, Jerry. All that matters is that I can tell you all the things I've kept inside for so long. Jerry, I want you to know I... I've never forgotten. Oh, it's been so many years. I, I can't believe it. I thought I'd see you again, but now I can't. Jerry, you, you don't hate me, do you? Hate you? Oh, Marilyn, I've never stopped loving you. Not for an instant. Oh, Jerry. Listen, we don't have much time. The transmission is getting fuzzy. Oh, Marilyn, I've got to see you. There's got to be some way. But there isn't. Let me talk to the pilot. Give it to me. Hello? Pilot, have you called the mothership? Did you have them checked with the computers? I've done everything. You've been on the frontier long enough to know the setup in an EDS. Oh, dear God, there must be something, some way. Do you think I'd let this happen if I wasn't sure? He tried to help me, Jerry. He tried. And it really doesn't matter. I'm not frightened anymore. Not now. But how did you get here? I don't understand. Well, I was going to Mimir to take a job, I thought. And now I realize it was... I was just going because I'd be closer to where you were. Oh, Jerry, all this time... Don't. Let me tell you something. Marilyn, I've always known you'd come back to me. I've known it every minute. It's what's kept me alive. I want you to hold that in your mind. Jerry, I, I can't hear you. We haven't much time. We're losing radio contact. Jerry! Oh, don't cry, darling. Just know how I feel. I do. It's fading. There are so many things to say. Jerry, if you can still hear me, maybe I'll come to see you again. Maybe I'll come to you in your, in your dreams, or, or be the touch of a breeze, or one of those golden-winged little birds singing my silly head off. Maybe I'll be nothing you can see or hear, but you'll know I'm there. Think of me like that, Jerry. Goodbye. Goodbye, my darling. She sat motionless in the hush that followed. And then she looked at me. Now? Now. I pulled down the black lever... And the inner door of the lock slid open. She walked with her head up and the brown curls brushing her shoulders. I let her do it alone. She stepped into the lock and turned to face me, and I could see the pulse in her throat. I'm ready. I pulled the red lever, and there was a slight waver as the air gushed out. I thought I sensed a bump, as if something had bumped the outer door. And then there was nothing. The white hand of the closet temperature control was back at zero. A cold equation had been balanced, and I was alone in the ship. You have just heard X-1, presented by the National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Street & Smith.
publishers of astounding science fiction. Tonight, by transcription, X-1 has brought you Cold Equations, written by Tom Godwin and adapted for radio by George Lefferts. Featured in the cast were Court Benson as Barton, Jay Meredith as Marilyn, Milo Bolton as Commander Delhart, Bob Hastings as Jerry Cross, Jack Arthur as Traffic Control Officer, and Walter Kinsella as the Woden Monitor. Your announcer, Bill Rippey, X-1 was directed by Ken McGregor and is an NBC Radio Network production. And now, next week. In the days of the Windjammers, whalers sometimes went on cruises that lasted as long as two years, and so sometimes they had to resort to rough methods to gather a crew. But what of the future, when a cruise to a distant star may last for 15 years or more? We hear of such a voyage next week on... X... X... Minus... Minus... One... One... Okay, so let's talk about where cold equations comes from because some people say that this story was actually a uh, a ripoff of a comic book story from weird science uh-huh. and uh, have you had a chance to read the comic book story a weighty decision have not no so but i i didn't realize i had read this story <laughs> when i when i was looking into cold equation and then i see oh they're saying it ripped off this comic story that's interesting and then i looked into <laughs> it and i was like wait a minute. No, I've read this uh, a couple years ago. I, a couple summers ago, I bought a hardcover edition of weird science comics for, I think it was $5 at a comic book store. And I'm like hardcover and it has a, a dust cover on it and $5. five yeah. And if it wasn't five, it was, it was 10. I mean, it was just a steal. And, and you picked up an extra copy for your good pal Steve, right? No, no, I didn't. <laughs> uh, one of the reasons why I think it was so cheap was that the, like, it's the kind of thing where the hardcover had fallen and the corner might have hit the floor or something. So it's kind of had that um, wobbly, uh, wavy, wavy corner yeah. uh, in it. And so it's not a perfect condition thing, but it was a really nice condition comic collection. Cool. And so I, I can see what people are saying when they say that it ripped it off the comic story. And I'm going to go, go ahead and spoil it since we've already heard the the story here right. from cold equations, but it's all about a guy who's going to fly a rocket and they're going to do a first trip to the moon. And on this first trip to the moon, um, the, the rocket is going to be calibrated perfectly. And they they make a big point of one of the guys on the crew has to lose 10 pounds. The other guys can lose as much weight as they want. They just can't gain any, but that guy has to lose 10 because every ounce has to be accounted for. Mm-hmm. And so as they're getting ready to go on the mission, um, the, the captain of the mission falls in love with the scientist who's running the mission, his daughter. And so they're going to get married when he gets back and then she just can't bear to be without him. So she stows away. And then they realize that they're all going to die if, (laughs) if she stays and, you know, so they can't throw that guy out because they need him to, to land the thing and they can't throw that guy out because they need him to do that and they can't throw. And so they have to throw her out. Uh Uh-huh. 
And it's really interesting because like, it's just a six page story or a seven page story and about two thirds of it are all on earth and it's all lead up to why she's going to be a stowaway. And, and so the actual conundrum that they're dealing with, it's fast. And I don't know if it's the kind of thing where the writer's like writing, 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 and is like, Oh shoot, I got to finish the story because <laughs> <laughs> I only have two pages left, but I'm not going to change anything earlier uh, oh. or, or what. But yeah, it's it's a uh, it's not great. <laughs> it's <laughs> the relationship is, uh, you know, it's there. And at least it's not like they, you know, love at first sight. Well, actually, it is love at first sight, but there's time. The relationship actually, you know, has like a couple months f- to develop but you don't see any development. You know, this is not, mm-hmm. it's not very sophisticated writing. Uh, although it's not dumbed down for children, but right. Yeah. So that, and, and there are a couple others that have been, uh, looked at as potential inspirations. One being, um, a British one called precedent. It was published, um, in 1949 originally. Um, and then, a much earlier one, which is a really interesting one. It was actually a novel called A Plunge into Space from 1890. And Jules Verne actually did the um, uh, the, the the prologue or whatever you call it, the, um, the preface to it. And I guess he didn't do a lot of prefaces to books. So having Jules Verne as you know the preface uh, writer for your book would have been a huge thing. In, uh, especially in 1890, and this one, it, it's much more um, a space voyage from Earth to Mars, and then uh, coming back from Earth, they pick up a Martian stowaway. Um, and it's it's a I haven't read it; I've just read about it, and I'm like, this sounds really interesting because there's one part where someone is talking about tapping into a universal force that, you know, they'll be able to do things with and that, you know, sort of mystical thing that, you know, uh, George Lucas very definitely could have picked this up and run with it with his stuff because, I mean, who else has read A Plunge into Space? So, you know, he did deep dives into a lot of stuff with A Princess from Mars and, um, you know, uh, characters and character names from you know, Dune and, and all different places that he picked up and, and put into his, uh, his universe. And, you know, having this as un- just another one of them doesn't seem like a, a huge stretch. Um, so it's, it's interesting. I, I don't know how it actually turns out. So it's actually the type of thing where you know, I'm sort of intrigued to read it now because, you know, I, I don't know how it ends, <laughs> you know, maybe he came up with a different, uh, a different understanding of, of how this whole thing could, could be, uh, could be resolved. Um, and I guess the writer whose name again was Tom Godwin. Um, I guess he, he kept turning in versions of this story where he solved the, (laughs) the equation. Um, and the, the editor kept sending it back (laughs) until he came up with the, you know, the, the darker ending that we have Campbell. Yeah. So John Campbell jr. Uh, who was the editor of astounding magazine, which became analog. Uh, 
he's a guy, he's a really interesting guy because he's the, he worked with Isaac Asimov. He worked with a number of writers where he would actually give them ideas to run with. And uh, yeah, but that's, that's what I was going to say when you said, Hey, what about like, how would you do it to get, make it so she could survive? Uh, Tom Godwin really wanted her to survive uh-huh. and kept being able to find out, you know, figure out a reason for her to not have to die. And Campbell's like, Nope, <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's, she's got to die. And it just, it, it's, so the story itself is definitely a, of a time, you know, and, and the, there's two characters, a male and a female, the male is just your your hard as nails uh, frontier type guy, uh-huh. you know. Um, you could easily see this being switched up, where you know it's, it's a school marm and a cowboy or something like that, right? Um, but you know, obviously, the female character in this—I mean, she's portrayed as young in all the versions that I've had, uh, you know, been able to read. She's portrayed as young, but she's not right. portrayed as very, very smart. <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> Well, Didn't you see the warning another... out there? What warning? Oh, you mean that <laughs> sign? That's not for me, silly. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I mean, that's something that, that we should really get into because, you know, I would imagine if this were going to be the type of problem that was possible, that you would do anything and everything to make sure like they do with with NASA nowadays, where it's like they they check and they recheck and they recheck and they make sure the entire area is clear and and you know there's no Bruce Banners or, or uh, Rick uh, whatever his name is running across the field when the bomb is about to explode or something. It's I mean it's it's a scorched earth policy that they push everyone so far back that nothing can possibly happen. And you know here we have something where it's just like you know a eh, hundred pounds is going to you know completely. Uh, uh, offset this this mission. Well, and that's another thing that makes this of its time is that they hadn't had a mission. You know, like they hadn't had the opportunity to send people into space. You know, when they finally sent them there. But actually, though, if you look at what they were doing with with like the Apollo missions and, th- and things like that, when they did send them up there, uh, they had to lighten things as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, they're flying in these ships that are you know, like tinfoil bubbles, you know, that, <laughs> uh, you know, it's enough to keep the air in and, you know, keep the people inside alive, uh, keep the radiation out mostly. Um, but Hopefully. It, yeah, <laughs> that's the other interesting thing. When you look at um, when they went up there, there was just a very small element of, yeah, we're hoping that the radiation is not going to hurt you. Yeah. You know, when, you, when you get, what's yeah. it called? The, the Van Allen belt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because they, yeah. they knew there was radiation there, but they were hoping that the amount of time that they were in it and that it wouldn't, you know, that the ship would be able to keep out enough that it wouldn't be enough to hurt them. And I do know that two astronauts who were on moon missions did end up having cancer. Um, but I don't know if the cancer was related to the radiation that they were exposed to All in right. space. Yeah, I mean, and you see the, the the same thing in the Fantastic Four, yeah. where they go yep. up there. Oh no, the solar radiation is you know going to change us, and it, it was it was that type of thing. You didn't know. And early uh, Superman, car- uh, not the cartoons, but in the uh, radio show, 
when he goes up into space, he's experiencing space storms and things like that because they didn't know. Yeah. You know, it was like, it could be. <laughs> so that's one of the things that makes me be a little forgiving to the story, you know, yeah. misogyny aside, is that <laughs> the the science information that they had, like this, this feels like it's very hard science. It, but then also kind of going back to that trolley idea, which we'll, we'll explain that in a moment here, but the story was written in such a way that it is no way out. Like the story had to be massaged and, and pushed and, and, you know, made so that there, there's just no possible way that this woman can, can survive. And, uh-huh. You know, it, the other thing that's interesting is when I was looking at reviews then of Stowaway, I saw a review of Stowaway that was referencing this story and the way that the guy was talking about the story, he was saying like this story, and I completely disagree with this, uh, but this story makes you uh, subconsciously want her to die. And and the no. misogyny is such that you, you're like, you're just waiting, you know, it's going to happen. You're waiting for it to happen. You want it to happen and you shouldn't want it to happen, but you, you can't help yourself because of the way the story is. And the story is pushing you in that direction. And I'm just like, I don't know what he is talking about because yeah. every time I've experienced the story in a new medium, um, and it, you know, so even though it's the same story, uh, the first couple of times I didn't realize until I got to the end of the story that, oh, I'm hearing the same story that I've already heard before or seen before. Yeah. Um, every time you're just like, how is she going to get out of this? How are they going to get out of this? And, yeah. you know, but then again, the story is written so that he can't leave. He's the one who has to pilot. It. They're taking medicine. Mm-hmm. Like, so, and, and this is where the trolley thing comes in because it's mathematics of life. It's, it's a cold equation of there is, and there's a couple different equations you can look at. One equation is just the mathematics of the ship working, but another is mathematics of the value of life. You Mm -hmm. have six people on the planet who have the fever or whatever it is, and they need the medicine. And so she is one person and he can't leave because if he's the one who goes out of the ship, then everyone dies. Right. So he's stuck. He's stuck with making the decision. If she's on there and he doesn't kill her, then everyone dies. Mm-hmm. You know? And, um, and so the, the thing about stowaway, the movie stowaway uh, is that they create a situation where, first of all, the ship is not put in danger because it's so tightly packed with um, there's this medicine and room for one person and room for all the fuel you need to get there. And, and there's no, there's no wiggle room at all, you know, and in stowaway, they fortunately set it up as the guy, first of all, and I don't want to spoil too much, but the person's not a, Stole away. Who's like, I just want to see my husband. <laughs> or, um, <laughs> it's an accident that puts him on the right. ship. Yeah. And then it's another accident that causes them to have to um, make this decision. How do we get there? You know? And so, but no matter what, the story has to do all these gymnastics, just like any fiction, like, don't get me wrong. 
right. almost all fiction is about, unless it's not very well written, is about, you know, doing these gymnastics to make the conflict work. Uh-huh. And so Stowaway does a, a really good job of, <laughs> there are checks and counter checks. And if there wasn't the second accident, they'd all be okay. <laughs> It'd yep. be fine. So, um, yeah, so let's talk about the trolley, the trolley thing. So this way we can kind of continue our discussion. Right. The trolley thing is where you have, um, it's a philosophical conundrum where you are asked and told you are, you can see a trolley. It's coming down a track and there are five people on the track who are unaware ahead of it. You have a switch and you can flip the switch, which will make the trolley switch tracks and will not hit those five people. It'll hit a single person on the switched track. What do you do? And it's a binary thing. You have to choose because what you were talking about, Steve, uh-huh. I would do anything, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. I, it's, it's binary. You can't like yell at them and tell them get off the track. You know, you can't yell at the one guy, get yeah. off the track. Uh, you can't do any other thing, but the trolley's brakes are broken. It's going to hit someone you have to decide. And so that's what we have with the cold equation. That's what we have with stowaway. And, and that's what we have with, with that trolley. All right. And it's a little different than the, like the lifeboat thing where, you know, it's like you, you have X amount of people in a lifeboat and you have limited supplies and you don't know how long you're going to get to, you know, to, to safety, you know, so who do you eliminate from the lifeboat? What, what would be the, the, the tiers of the people that you would eliminate from the lifeboat? And typically it's, you know, there's a, a maybe a paraplegic and a child and an older an person, person and, yeah. and a doctor and, you know, people and it, it's, it's, it's an artificial system where you're being forced to put value on individual people or peoples. So you would say, well, I would save the doctor because just in case anyone got sick, he would be there. And I would get rid of the paraplegic because they can't contribute anything, you know, and and all of a sudden you're putting these, these weights that don't really exist because every single person is made in the image of God, you know? So the real, the real thing is that, you know, well, we wouldn't throw anyone out. We would all pray and, and hope that God would save us all. And if he doesn't, then, you know. Hopefully there's well, an evangelist on board. <laughs> what all of these cause you to do though, is, is to make a moral decision to do something that's immoral. You know, so like it's asking you, you you've got to throw someone out of the boat. Who is it going to be? Well, the right. 90 year old man has lived a life and the 10 year old boy has not. So, right. you know, and, and it's forcing you to kind of make, uh, you know, these choices that, uh, especially in college, like I, I think that most people, are confronted with these questions in philosophy class in college. Right. You know, and I do know that as a college student, I felt very, very smart talking <laughs> about these things. You know, I felt like, Oh, I, I, I got it going on. You know, I, I know what I'm, I'm doing. <laughs> um, but then you, when you start unpacking your decision-making process and everything is kind of a, well, maybe, maybe not. 
maybe, yeah, maybe I don't. And it, but it's always so. This goes back to Man of Steel, right? Man of Steel. There's this whole thing about how Superman would not have done what he did, where he kills Zod because Zod is killing so many people, and he's about to kill that family. Right. It's Superman's trolley. He has to mm-hmm. choose Zod or the four people in the subway. And right. he ends up snapping Zod's neck and he he's anguished over it. And I, actually, that's a detail I really appreciate is, is that he yeah. he doesn't want to do that, but there was no other way out. And that this is mm-hmm. the choice he had to make in this situation. And I know people complain about it because Superman wouldn't do that. But this really was Zack Snyder writing a story that's going to push the character into a place where he has to make that choice. Mm hmm. You know, and that's what yep. all of these philosophical questions are, is to make you make that choice. What's interesting is, especially with the trolley, the trolley one, like, as you're asking yourself, what would I do? Then I think what's better for us is to ask ourselves, well, why would I do what I did? Because some people would not make the switch because they're taking part in the actual you know killing of someone and if you don't mm-hmm. touch the switch then it's just it's the trolley that did it it's not you right but if you touch the switch then you chose for that person to die right and then some people look at it as but it's it's five people versus one and i was looking at an article about this it's fascinating they did a whole barrage of these style of questions for a whole bunch of people mm-hmm. and the last question was there are uh, lab mice. There's five of them in one thing. There's one of them in the other. Uh-huh. And you have 20 seconds to make a choice. Your choice is not going to kill anything. It's only going to be the whatever you choose. If you don't choose anything, the five mice in the one thing are going to get a very painful electrical shock. Uh-huh. But if in that 20 seconds you hit the button, the single mouse in the other container will get the shock instead. Okay. So they answer the question and then they're asked to go into another room. And when they go through the door into the other room, there is the setup. There's a container with five mice, another container with five, with one mouse and a countdown on a computer screen counting down from 20 <laughs> seconds. And so, um, they're forced to hurt mice. Right. So the vast majority of them hit the button. Now, no mice got injured but they were trying to set up a situation <laughs> where they were th- hoping that some would, that, that the people would think that they possibly could be hurting a mouse, you know? And so they actually are right. doing, making the choice in a real world situation. And the vast majority, you know, no matter how they answered the question and, and the other questions as well, did choose the math. They chose mm-hmm. the lesser number of, of people, lesser the lesser number of creatures to be hurt they the vast majority um so i I find that very interesting you know what's really interesting is talk to the normal everyday human being out there and give them this conundrum say your your beloved pet and your most hated enemy are in opposite ends of the swimming pool drowning. You can save one. Who do you save? Most people will save their pet over a human being. 
I've talked to people and they're, they're like, of course I'd save my pet. <laughs> and it's like over a human being. So, you know, this type of logic, this type of thinking, it gets us to this point in the world where people would choose animals over people and it's, it's a no brainer for them. But I wonder, so, I wonder what they actually would choose if they were in that situation. Cause the, again, this is an imaginary situation created to get the right. answer, right? Yeah. Because again, the, the people who wouldn't change the switch on the trolley did hit the button for the mouse. Like, so when people were giving, they were verbally giving one answer, but then they were turning around and, and doing something different to the answer. And which is, which is interesting because, you know, if you propose the question and someone gives the answer, it immediately says, okay, I gave that answer. Now I want to think about it just for a little bit to see if I really agree with it. Oh, wait a minute. Now it's the actual thing. Hmm. And it would be interesting to see what the actual response would be if you could if you could break that uh, that you know if you could separate the the those two events from the person and say this is this is a person who would not press the button now we're going to introduce them to the button thing but of course you can't do that until you test the person and find out whether or not they'd press the button. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. well, and the people who were doing that study with the actual mice in the containers, they were just trying to figure out what can we do that the people doing the tests might think we might actually do. Because there was that one test a long while ago where it was like, um, to, uh, I don't remember, there was a person in another room, and every time they hit a button, the person would scream. And right. so the question was like, um, you know, will they stop hitting the button? You know, the, uh, even though they can't see the person. Um, but now, especially if you're doing like an actual, you know, university study, <laughs> there are rules and there are things you can't do. And so these people who are making this test are like, well, they know we're not going to put anyone in danger. They know we're not actually going to hurt anyone. So if they come in and they're like, oh, there's five people in that room and one person in that room, you have to choose who's going to get hurt. They can't do that in this university test because there's standards that they have to follow. And so that's why they came up with the mouse. And it's, it's, it's an interesting conundrum. I'm curious when push comes to shove what I would do, but I have a feeling, you know, the answer that I have when I'm thinking about this is I'd, I'd hit the switch. You know, because it's it's one versus another. Now, there's a new, not new, newer question that came out of this where it wasn't a switch, but it was you're standing next to another person. This is horrible. <laughs> you're standing yeah. next to another person. There's five people on the track. A trawler is coming. And if you push this person, who's a large person. It'll stop the, the trolley. Push them on the trolley or in front of the trolley. The trolley will derail before it gets to those five people. Right. And now that's a different story. Yeah. And that's, that's where you're, you've moved from this impersonal thing to this personal thing. And you're actually using your hands. And and again, uh-huh. that's Man of Steel, right? Yep. <laughs> Zack Snyder wrote the story to get Superman into that place where there was only 
two choices. And the only problem I have with that, and even as I say this, there is an argument against what I'm about to say, but my problem is Superman would find a way, you know? (laughs) So in my mind, Batman would always find a way. Superman, Superman would find a way. Like he, he, he blast off into space, you know, or, or whatever it might be. He'd find a way to do this where it was not this either or, and that's where, like, I, whenever I'm thinking about this idea, I'm just like, no, there's, it's not binary, you know, like, yeah, it's not, you know, you're, you've created a story where it's either or I'd start screaming at those people. Well, no, it's not part of the question. <laughs> it's not an option. Why? You know, so now you have to like augment the story because they're all either your voice is gone or you're in a place where it's too loud for them to hear you or, you know, so you have to create the scenario, create the scenario. And all of these, the question is how immoral of a decision can we make you make to get to a moral conclusion? Right. I've saved lives. The the, the ends will justify the means somehow. (laughs) You know, it's it's like that's that's the main point of their thing that the ends will justify the means. So you know, how is he going to do the bad thing? Is there that's their whole thing? It's like he's going to do a bad thing. You know, it's 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 that's a given, <laughs> and it doesn't have to be that way. If you write it well enough, you can present conundrums and things like this in different ways that doesn't you know, compromise the character. I mean, he can move almost as fast as time. So why doesn't he just like move himself in the, well, in the direction of the blast? Not or, Zack I mean, Snyder's one, you know, it's, well, yeah, of and, course. and obviously, you know, with that trolley with where you push the person, there is a third option. Let the trolley go, push the person or jump on the track yourself. I think that that's and, not an option because the person is in front of you. <laughs> but th- this is what I'm saying though. You have to then you you've either created this binary either or yeah. and nothing else exists. Yeah. So what are you gonna do? Which works for the philosophical conversation. Mm-hmm. But that's what I hate about the conversation. Like you brought up the lifeboat. I mm-hmm. hate that the lifeboat conversation requires the only solution is to choose who is going to die. Right. Now you're supposed to hate that. Like that's actually a part of the conundrum is that no one wants to kill anyone. Like mm-hmm. if you don't hate that part of the situation, you're uh, was are you a psychopath or are you a sociopath? A I'm soci- not sure, but there's sociopath. one of those opaths that you are. You know, <laughs> you're down the wrong path. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and yeah, so that's where again. You know, just like what I've always said, like who would win in a fight versus of Superman versus Batman, mm-hmm. you know, who would win in the fight? Well, who's writing it? What exactly. do they think? They'll make yep. it work. Yep. They'll make it work. Yeah. And, and I mean, and it's fiction. So anything can happen. Obviously, Batman could beat up Superman. It, it's fiction. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and that's and where it, it's it's. Oh, it's ahead. it's what I when I when I'm talking to kids, you know I I to to show them how powerful God is, 
and and where true power comes from. I'll be talking to like a six year old, and I'll say, "Is there any possible way that you could you could beat the Rock in a fight or, 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 or arm wrestling? Beat him in arm wrestling?" And they're like, "No, there's no possible way." And I'm like, "Well, um, what if he were asleep?" They're like, "Oh yeah." Yeah, what if what if he were you know what what if God forbid he were dead, you know, or in a coma, or I mean, God takes power away from people every single day. The most powerful person in the world still has to sleep, and when you have that dynamic, you know, it's it, it's so it's so dynamic. I mean, it's it's the the definition of dynamic because it's zero to infinity, and God is that. So when it comes down to these types of of uh, questions, and you're introducing them to 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 children and stuff like that, I mean, it's there's always a way around it <laughs> because around it's fiction, immorality, yeah. exactly. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And so that's the thing with cold equations, though. Like the whole, there's not really a, a moral conundrum. There's. Choice A is we throw her out and choice B is we try and find a different way so we don't have to. Right. There right. really there isn't any um moment where he's like, well, we can't do we we can just do nothing. Like, uh-huh. it, it, the whole thing about the story is considering every possibility and finding every possibility. And obviously if Captain Kirk was to do this, it would either be he figures out a way because he's Captain Kirk or he doesn't and has to live with it forever until Spock erases his memory. Because this is this is City on the Edge of Forever. You know, where mm-hmm. Edith, yeah. uh, I can't remember her last name, but Edith, Edith has to die. Because if she doesn't, yeah. Hitler wins World War II. And <laughs> that's right. And so yeah. uh I know that Harlan Ellison was not happy with the way that they changed his episode, but the ending of this where Kirk sees what's about to happen. He knows that it will result in her, in her death. He's holding himself back, but then he also, they have to, he has to stop McCoy from rescuing Edith. Right. And, and so he has to physically, you know, it's, this is the trolley conundrum and, and that's the choice he had to make. And it, it wrecks him. And then, very interesting ending to that episode is that Spock mind melds with Kirk and causes him to forget. Uh-huh. How wild is that? Like, <laughs> and I don't, I, I know that they've returned to the, the uh, guardian of, of forever in, in books and novels. Um, cartoon and the cartoon. Yeah. Yep. Um, but I don't think that they, uh, that I've seen have, have addressed like, he shouldn't remember what happened. <laughs> they may have. I, I haven't followed up the the entire, you know, city on the river, city or, or whatever the stupid thing is. I the Guardian of it. Forever. Guardian of Forever, you know, uh, lore. But they may have. I'm not sure. It, I'm I'm hoping that whoever wrote a book sequel, because there were a couple book sequels, uh-huh. was clever enough to to address that. But. Yeah, there was a whole big thing with Harlan Ellison where they would actually have to pay him to put it in books or movies, TV show. Um, And so some people are like, well, 
I don't want to spoil anything, but if he was, if, if this thing would have show up, did they pay him? I don't know. Cause he's, is he still alive? <laughs> no, he passed away. He did. Oh, maybe that's how they're able to, yeah. <laughs> to do it. But so yeah, Kirk, he had the, he had the conundrum and you saw his answer. Yep. But then I like Phil Coulson and agents of shield where they have, it's not quite the same situation, but it's one of the characters, one of the good guys asks him acceptable losses and he's zero, mm-hmm. you know, zero is, yeah. is my number. I don't do, I don't do that yep. kind of math. Yep. That's the answer yeah, to the conundrum. No. <laughs> do your best to not do the math. And so you have the character in cold equations. He's trying to do everything he can, trying to come up with every possibility. And then the story really becomes very nihilistic and, and it's just a hopeless story. So as much as I enjoy listening to X minus one, when I come to this story, there's a, a hopelessness to it. And yeah, I, I, you know what I'm, I re-listened to it and I, I must've re-listened to it a little earlier with, than before, um, stowaway happened. And I'm thinking, I, I thought I heard a different story that was like this and it ended ambiguously where the two people were, were considering, you know, well, something has to happen. So it was the weight has to be accounted for. And then you, it was like you saw from a distance the ship and you saw one spacesuit leave the ship. Oh, that could have been the weight. The, that it, could, it might have been. That could have been the weight of the, was the spaceship, or the space suit, not the. No, the no, no. It, it wasn't. It, it was the person in. There was someone in the, oh, the, oh, the gotcha. space suit, but you don't know who it was. Well, cold equations, cold equations gets us to a point where you know he obviously it, it can't be him. Right. Yeah. You know that's the that's the conundrum there because he has to f- land the ship. Yeah. But this one, it was it was more. I think it, it it cast it more on the person where if it were you and you had a life worth living and you were presented with a dilemma where you could either have this person who made the mistake, you know, and they're willing to own up to it, but, you know, they have a life that they've, you know, that they, that they can live as well. Would you take the hit? And say, you know what? I can't let you. I can't let you kill yourself. I can't, you know, let you do that. I will. I will do it. And that's Would one of the things that? that that cold equations, anyway, because the narrator is the the one that you're kind of following. You know, right. that's that's the one. There's a safety net there. Like he briefly maybe considers, could it be me? but it can't be him, you know? And yeah. so there's safety there for that narrator. And, and, and that's one of the, you know, again, it's hopeless, you know, but it's more about him dealing with the emotion of having to do this terrible thing to this woman and less about in, in all versions of this, it's less about what, what about her? 
and <laughs> so uh yeah. let's let's talk about stowaway briefly and then we can talk about some some biblical stuff with this as well okay but are we going to do spoilers or what no i think we want to be careful about spoilers okay we, uh, just talk about like just the, how the movie was made and 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 if you liked it or not but um because what i liked about this movie is it's one of those low budget sci-fi movies where like they do a the launch of the rocket and you're just in the cockpit with the people. Right. You know, and, and what's nice about that is makes it smaller, more personal. You're looking out the window with them. There's a number of times when they're looking out the window and, mm -hmm. you know, one time they look out the window and there's earth and it's like, wow, we're doing this, you know? <laughs> and another time they look out the window and there's earth and it's, you know, it's the stowaway. And he's mm -hmm. like, Oh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I ain't going back for a couple of years. I'm in trouble. <laughs> yeah, but they, the, they, I think they built not a complete set. I don't think, but I mean, there was plenty of times when they did a complete walkthrough from one area of the ship to another area, and it was built. I mean, it was yeah, obviously yeah. a set. They weren't in space, but it it looked real. It was really, um, you know, that realistic science fiction where it, it it got to the point for me where I don't want to give away too much, but I thought I thought there was something more drastic that was going to happen that was sort of going to force the hands of the people involved. And it would have been, you know, like a Hollywood type thing. It would have been more like an alien type of a thing not an actual alien or a monster or something but um it would have that type of of drama you know over the top drama uh, you know hollywood drama instead of real world drama and they stuck with real world drama yeah yeah so you know it was it was refreshing because you know this could this could have been you know something that that happens on on a trip to to mars you know, I mean, uh, uh, Apollo 13, it's that type of a, a movie where, you know, they have something that goes wrong. They have to fix it or, you know, it will be fatal at least to, you know, to at least to one person. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's so. uh, that that's semi-realistic. Uh, not too the not too distant future, you know, next Sunday, mm -hmm. AD kind of thing. Um <laughs> Where when they do those kind of movies and, and this one, again, like I said, it feels like, um, you know, it's really low budget, but also it's really realistic because they are staying personal and they're staying right there with the characters. And so you don't need all the special effects. There are some, you know, they go on a, they go on a walk, yeah. a spacewalk. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so there is some special effects going on and they're looking out windows and, and things like that. But, um, the other thing that was interesting is, of the four main actors, you have Anna Kendrick, you have mm -hmm. uh, Daniel Day Kim, mm -hmm. you have uh, Tony Collette. Those yeah. are the three astronauts, right? Yeah. And then you have this other actor. I don't know who is. Uh, it's Shamir Sh Anderson. Shamir Anderson. I've yeah. never heard of him. Now, I might have seen him in something. Oh, yeah. But, uh, in fact, let's check and see. He's done some things. He has done some things, but nothing I'm recognizing. He uh, is known for playing U.S. Deputy Marshal Xavier Dolls on the television series Winona Earp. I 
honestly don't know if I've seen him in anything <laughs> as I look at his credits, uh, which works for me because you have these three people that I'm familiar with and have seen them in things. Um, and, and I'm familiar with their kind of characters that they play and their kind of, um, the way that they act. And then you have this new person who gets thrown into the mix mm-hmm. and I don't know who this guy is and they don't know who this guy is. And it kind of works on a, on a meta level for me. Yeah. I wasn't super familiar with, with any of the, the actors or actresses. I mean, I I just, I don't watch too many movies in general. So, so Daniel day Kim um, was in lost and then he was also in Hawaii five. And so watch. Yeah. And, and, uh, Anna Kendrick has been in a number of, um, movies. Yeah. She looked familiar. I just couldn't, Peg her and I also have a coworker everything. who really reminded me of who Anna Kendrick really reminded me of this coworker that I had, okay. um, especially in that Christmas movie where she is basically Elf, but she was the main character. Okay, and so it's someone from the North Pole going into the real Noel. world. Noel, yeah, that's yeah. the one. It's okay. It's cute. It's funny. My kids really liked it. So I've seen it twice now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, all right then. Uh, And then Tony Collette, I've I've seen in um, some movies here and there, and and maybe I've even seen more where it's like I'm seeing her on, you know, doing an interview about, you know, the special thing that she's, you know, her newest project. But, um, and I've heard her talk on NPR a couple of times, but anyway, the that was an interesting dynamic for me. Um, but I will say this as I was watching it, this is why I'm really curious what Evan thinks of this movie, but he didn't get a chance to see it. And I'm just curious if he liked it or not, because yeah. watching it, it's a little slow. There's not a lot of action. This is about four people interacting with each other. And so if you like the people, you'll like the movie. Mm-hmm. But if you don't like the people, you're not going to care about the drama. <laughs> and that's that's the danger of a movie like this, where, yep. you know, when you have a movie where there's lots of action and it's moving from one thing to another, it's very it's it's much Godzilla versus Kong. Mm-hmm. It was it's much easier to not care about any of the human drama that's going on, because, you know, in a moment or two, we're going to get an awesome gorilla slapping a lizard in the face. <laughs> Uh, maybe a robot. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But but here it's it's really yeah, it's it's personal drama. It's uh Daniel Day Kim's character, he's working with uh algae, and so one of the things like, hey, we need oxygen, so can you he's like, This is my life's work. You know, and, and so that's the kind of thing where you're you're caring about him, caring about stuff that's going on. He's left his wife for two years to go on this mission and he, what happens if he has to throw it all away? Yeah. You know, yeah. they're stuck on the ship for two years and, and he gets to Mars and he can do nothing. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, suddenly there's, there's these smaller stakes that are involved here, but obviously then they, they crank it up <laughs> and, right. and the stakes get bigger and, 
but then the finale is it's about what you expect but then it's also again very personal and yeah but we don't want to spoil it no we don't want to spoil it although i I will say as as much as as i enjoyed it and, and i might go back and and watch the you know the the whole thing again because it's kind of an interesting place to be you know just visually um maybe people can contact me off board on you know off the, the the podcast i i i don't think the way it ended answered all the questions so well, i'll put it this way it answered the big question You know, like they have to find a solution. Well, a solution is found. Well, yes. And, (laughs) but, and then it kind of just ends. (laughs) Story wise, um, there, I think there's a, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. You see, there's a compelling sequel that could come out of this. Yep. Because this movie doesn't take them home. And there's, you know, the ramifications of the decisions that they make. Yeah. And there's, I mean, friction between uh, Daniel Day Kim's character and Shamir Anderson's character. And, you know, obviously with the, you know, the, the doctor, uh, you know, something, if, if something is, is going on in that section of the, the mission and, you know, if some, whatever is, is happening, every single person has this little niche that you know now without you know if if you're missing one person out of them it's going to whoever it is it's going to recast how the entire thing how the entire thing works from there and whoever is missing you know if it's one person or whoever how many ever it's going to the weight of that person is still going to be there for the other people to have to deal with for two years. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then the rest of their lives probably. Well, and then, uh, and so the, the stowaway, uh, Shamir Anderson's character, Uh uh, they did a good job of creating something back on earth that, so his, his loss won't be felt on the ship, you know? So you have the doctor, you have the scientist and you have the mission commander and each one of them to lose one of them is a, a huge loss. For him to lose him, it's what's back home. You know, he has a he has a sister who right. who relies on him because she has special needs. You know, and, yeah. and they don't really explain what it is, but they've created a situation where each one of these people matters. And 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 to be fair to cold equations, um, his stowaway, she matters too. Yeah, she does. And and having her, you know. It's interesting because in the X minus one episode, it's her husband. Mm -hmm. And I really actually think that that's of the different versions that I've seen. This is probably the best relationship because in the original story, it's her brother. Yeah. And in uh, dimension X, not dimension X uh, beyond tomorrow, uh, Mm -hmm. they kept that brother relationship and it just being the brother, it doesn't feel as, I don't know, intense. Yeah. I mean, you've, and, you've known your brother your entire life and this is just the end of that. 
But if you just got married or in this episode, you know, you're trying to get back together with someone who you are the one that, that ruined the relationship, you know, it, there's the, the whole weight of that is, is much more than, you know, a brother. <laughs> yeah. And I, I feel like the stakes in that episode are, are bigger. The interesting thing about the beyond tomorrow episode is that, uh, John W. Campbell Jr., was a producer on that show. He's actually the narrator on that show. Mm -hmm. And so it is interesting that he's going to make sure that the story is much, much closer to the original. Right. You know, and so they're going to keep that brother sister relationship. And uh, now they, they add an element of time. She hasn't seen her brother in 10 years as opposed to, I think it was two years that she hadn't seen her husband. Mm -hmm. Um, but I feel like the I want to get back with my husband. I want to be back with him. You know, I want that relationship again. I feel like that is much more incentive for her to, you know, go ahead and break the rules. Yeah. And, and may, yeah. Uh, should she be aware? Absolutely. Like the solution to cold equation actually should be she's, she knows how to read. She's on a spaceship. It's been explained to her. <laughs> like, right. She knows the consequences are more than just a fine. Like that's the real solution is that she should have known it was more than just a fine. Yeah. But, but she didn't. <laughs> and that's the story they wrote. <laughs> Oops. So I do Why like, do the... I have to pay a fine. <laughs> I'm willing to pay whatever I needed to pay. It's okay. No, it's not. Oh no. So in none so, of them, I, I don't like her characterization in any of them. Stowaway at least has better characterization and more realistic relationships and and exploration, I guess, of of the question. So if it were twenty one fifty or you know whatever year it's supposed to be, and you were that pilot, what? First of all, would you? Um, do you think you could uh, come up with a, a way that you could both survive? Do you think that that's the best way for that to work out? And if so, what would you do? What What do you think would be your answer to it? Well, and I don't know. I'm, I'm really curious what Tom Godwin was trying to push past uh, John W. Campbell. Like, what were right. these solutions? Because the way it's described um, – it's described as he couldn't help himself, you know, he's, he, and he's constantly coming up with these different ideas of how it would work, you know, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, they, they make it so that he can't jettison the medicine. He can't jettison the fuel. He, but are there chairs, you know, like, can they jettison mm-hmm. the chairs that they're sitting in? Right. Um, and I think that would be my first solution would be what can we get rid of? Um, well, The Martian. Did you watch The Martian or read it? No. One of the interesting things about The Martian was the way that they were able to, like, as they're trying to get him back to a, a ship, it didn't matter if the sh- if his ship wasn't comfortable. He could take the mm-hmm. chairs out. He didn't need the chairs for his thing to, to leave the, the planet. You know, get rid of the chairs. Get rid of this. Get rid of that. <laughs> you know, and so that's, that's where my mind goes is just, Okay, get rid of the chairs, get rid of maybe, you know, that control panel over there that only has two buttons on it. 
well, let's get rid of the the metal plate, you know. So, but what you, if it came down to the the human beings on board, and you know, you you can't get rid of anything else. Every everything on the ship is is you know load bearing. Okay, so every you're, single thing you're pulling me back into the is, the real story. Yeah, the okay. real story. Every single thing on the ship is is necessary. And you have two human beings. You don't have uh, uh, space suits that you can throw out. You can't jettison the food. Um, you know anything like that? What would you? What would you do? You, do you have a way that you could? Uh, you could still save both people. So, this is not my idea, but I did read this as someone's idea, mm-hmm. and that was um, I I think that I read this as someone's idea. Cutting off your legs, mm-hmm. you know, that's so, probably like all probably four legs, you know, <laughs> that, I don't know how you're going to land the ship though. Well, you know, like there's, there's the pain, there's loss of blood. There's all sorts of things where suddenly you're not going to be making the right decisions. Right. But instead of, I mean, you, to do every single possible thing to save that one person, you know, it, it would be it, if you can imagine that that there would still be a some sort of a you know first aid type of a thing where you could you know safely sever limbs and and do that. Um, but I think outside of that, I mean, there there was actually a different. I didn't read this either, but a different uh, uh, story by a different author called the cold solution, which, um, was done in uh, 1991. So that would be kind of an interesting one to, to check out, to see what he came up with. Yeah. I, I, I'm, uh, yeah, I'd be curious, but I think the, the most important thing that I would do would be to go back in time and make sure <laughs> everybody knew everything and all the little nuances and the signs and all that stuff, because then it would be like, uh, oh, 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 you're right. Okay, I'll step out and let you get on with your mission. Uh, see you later. You know, tell everyone I love them, and then you know people would understand because to have that not be a thing is, you know. Obviously, you wouldn't have the story without it. Right. That's but which is fiction. Yeah. Like everything in fiction is about turning the events into the direction that even if the characters are writing it for you, you know, like mm-hmm. it's still you, you know, pushing the story forward with these events. Well, how are they going to solve this one? You know, and and your story that you are creating is either pushing them away to the, from the solution or toward the solution. Yeah. And in this case, John W. Campbell, Campbell Jr. <laughs> he just pushed that story back and said, Nope, Nope. <laughs> Keep writing. That's yeah. not how the ending is going to be. <laughs> Tom or Don or whoever your name is. Uh, Tom. Tom. <laughs> Tom. <laughs> Tom, oh my goodness! <laughs> it does make me want to buy a plunge into space, though. So, well, it makes me want to buy that uh, issue of Analog. 
with the cold solution in it. Yeah. I'm curious what his actual solution was. And I'm not sure how much I want to like look into it or if I just want to find the thing and, and, and read it, you know? Yeah. It would be really, I think in a whole other episode, we could have a sequel to this episode where we, um, deal with all the other ramifications of the, yeah. the, the dilemma. Yeah. Uh, okay. So biblical versions and variations and, and theme things to look at here. I'm struck by a story in the Bible that's very similar to this. Yeah. Do you know what it is? No. Jonah. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're on the boat. They're going to die. And Jonah's like, yeah, it's me. It's me. So they draw straws and, you know, it's, it's me. <laughs> you got to throw me over. <laughs> but they're going to die unless they get rid of you know, the problem and the problem is, is Jonah is, you know, so you have a crew that really is facing the cold equation of, you know, us minus him equals we're okay. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's it. And then the other interesting thing that that gets into the, the biblical ideas here is, um, uh, I once heard a speaker when I was in, I want to say late elementary or junior high. And he came to our church and he was talking just about, you know, what, it, what, what it meant that Jesus did and what it meant, what God was doing when it says for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. And he, he created this, this word picture that was basically the trolley conundrum. Now this is where it takes it. You were bringing up the pet thing. And I thought you were going in a different direction when you started talking about it. Um, but it's, it becomes, he, he tells a story of a man who is the, he is the, the guy who does the switch on, on the train mm -hmm. and he sees his son is playing on the tracks. Oh, okay. Yeah. And the, and, and it's okay because that's not the track the train goes on, but I, I think it has had to do with the train and needed to switch over. And if it stayed on the track that it was on, it would, um, it would be derailed and everyone would die, you know? Right. And so this is, you know, he had to choose and actually his story had something to do with the kid. Oh no, no, no. The kid wasn't playing on the tracks. The kid was playing on the gears of a, uh, bridge that's going up and down for, um, over water. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, what do they yeah. call that? Uh, the drawbridge. Yeah. Trestle. Um, and he had to lower the bridge or the train would go into the river. That's what it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so he had to do that and, and it killed his son. And yep. I don't know if it was a true story or if he was just painting this word picture, but it was this idea of, you know, the sacrifice of the son to save other people. And, right. and, you know, and that's where it's mathematics as well, you know, but it's this math of one, you know, where, Christ was the only sacrifice that could save us, uh -huh. you know, and, and that's what, that's what God chose. That's what he, that's what Christ chose too. I mean, Christ on the cross, you know, why have you forsaken me before the cross was saying, you know, take this cup away from me, uh, but not my will, but yours, you know? And, and so it, it wasn't that 
Christ didn't have any say in it, uh, but Christ chose to do it for us, uh-huh. you know, and, and, um, and so you have this kind of that trolley, <laughs> again, that trolley idea, the difference being, um, you know, the, on the one hand Christ and on the other hand, people lost in sin, you know, and, yeah. and what's, what was the choice that was made there? Right. Um, very different emphasis. <laughs> A little bit, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I think when um, a lot of times when the Pharisees were challenging Jesus, they came up with things like this, like you know the woman caught in sin, you know, in adultery, and and said, you know, what should we do? Should we disobey Moses and let her go, or should we kill this person, Jesus? And, you know, giving him forced dilemmas like that. And, you know, time and time again, Jesus just turns them right around on the people. Yeah. So. Yeah. I don't know what Jesus's answer to the trolley conundrum would be. I just know this. <laughs> it'd be the right answer. Yes. <laughs> and it would be. It'd be really clever. <laughs> it's, uh, well, I would plan the rapture right around yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, you know, interesting, though, again, the trolley, you know, needs of the many versus needs of the few when the chief priests were talking about Christ, they were saying, you know, better that one person die than our whole nation suffer. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they, I, I, one of the interesting things that we need to do when we are looking at the Bible is putting ourselves in other people's shoes, you know, and, and recognizing like the chief priests, while they weren't, good and some of them may have been just really awful people i don't know it's just like anybody can be i have been an awful person (laughs) um but i do think that some of them were genuine yeah you know and and then they really were looking at it like look if we have this guy over here who it's not a violent insurgence but he's saying things that the romans really could kind of take offense to and they're looking at it like he needs to go because if he doesn't, <laughs> we're all going to suffer. Yeah. And that's, that's valid reasoning. It may not uh-huh. be a valid thing to base your decision on, but it's definitely something that can go into the hopper and, <laughs> and be a part of the discussion, you know? Um, but yeah, it's, it, it is the kind of thing where th- it humanizes the people who did these things. You know, it's, it's, it's easy to forget that, that Judas, he was a human. He was a yeah. guy just like you and me, you know, he was a, a person and he wasn't necessarily, maybe he was, but he, I doubt that he was this, you know, really evil looking dude, you know, oh, who right. was just like, yeah. you know, I'm the man in black and I, <laughs> don't talk to me, anybody. Yeah, um, he had a scar over one eye. And, and... he puts his cloak up over his <laughs> face, you know, to cover his nose and his mouth. And it's just his eyes peeking over it, squinting at people. Um, that's that's not who he was. I mean, he was a follower of Jesus. He was a disciple of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we, we have to make sure we don't dehumanize the humans of the Bible. Oh, right. Yeah. And, and... Because when we do that, we, we dehumanize ourselves because they were sinners and we're sinners. Right. But we also, th- we run the danger of, of that, um, elitism, you mm-hmm. know, I, I'm above that person. 
and we're right. not, you know, we're not above Judas. Uh, we can look at what he said and we can, and, or, or did, we can look at what he did and, and maybe, you know, righteously judge, but, uh-huh. you know, we, we can't, we can't look down on him as someone, someone that's subhuman. Yeah. He if, was a, if you were reading, if you were reading the Bible and you just eliminated the spoilers that John and I think some of the other writers put in there where it says, now Judas was, you know, the devil from the start and stuff like that. It sort of gives it away. But if you didn't have that in there and you get to the end of the story where Judas betrays Jesus and you get the sense that the other disciples probably got, where it's like, wait a minute, Judas? No, not Judas. You know, and, and you would you would have this different sense of it. Um, you know, the way the Bible writes it is it, it gives it away, which is, which is fine. That's how scripture wants to, I think uh, part of why it gave it away was to make sure don't confuse this one with that one. You know, we got Jude, (laughs) Jude's over there. I'm not talking about Jude who had to call himself Jude because Judas ruined the name Judas for everyone. (laughs) I'm talking about Judas. Yeah. Be like having an Adolf, you know, not a lot of Adolfs nowadays. No, no. Uh, I I read a graphic novel series called Adolf once, though, that it's about other people. It's about three Adolfs. There's a kid named Adolf living in Japan and a, an adult named Adolf living in Germany and then Adolf Hitler. And <laughs> now Adolf Hitler was kind of a background character. It wasn't like you weren't getting like into his deep psyche or anything like that. But, but it was. It was yeah. Yeah. It was. It was interesting. I didn't finish it because the last volume came out and I missed it. And so I still, I'm not even sure if I have it. I don't think I ever got the last volume, but Hmm. yeah, it was about 25 years ago that I read that. Do you know where the, where the names punch and Judy come from? You know, the dolls punch and Judy, you know, where they, the the origination. I do not know the origination. No punch is short for punches pilot. And Judy is short for Judas. No way. Yeah. Huh. That's really interesting. I know. But all that to say, you know, <laughs> you when when looking at this this conundrum, obviously, no matter what, we need to follow God's example, which is the example of love. You know, uh-huh. and so whatever the answer is, the right answer is going to come from loving our neighbor as ourselves. All right. And so our, our hero in cold equations, you know, he's, he's trying to save people's lives. You know, how do I do that? And then he has to save, yeah. he wants to save her life. Um, and it, so at least there's that going for him again, <laughs> there's the misogyny. There's the, like yeah. whoever wrote uh, Tom Godwin, I haven't read anything else by him, but I, I imagine space barbarians probably isn't going to treat women much better than this story does. Never know. So, you never but know. You, you do. You never know. You never know. Space barbarians was 10 years later. You know, it was 64 yeah. or something like that. Maybe he might've learned, got, got better at that kind of thing. So, and I think the, the most, one of the most important things you can take away from things like this is when you have a decision like this, pray about it. Read the Bible in all the different places where it might mention something like this. Learn from that. Get godly counsel on it. And then make your decision along with your conscience. And when you do that, 
whatever decision you make will be the right one. Don't go against your conscience. And that's you where know, we have, yeah, we have our conscience. We have yeah. the, the scripture, the living word of God. We have the Holy Spirit yeah. who is with us and hopefully filling us you know, with, with yeah. his spirit. Um, we have Christ's example. You know, I mean, yeah, these are things that dude from the story didn't have. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Oh, by the way, I, there's one more solution that I thought we might be headed toward when I was, when I first listened to this X minus one, um, or maybe it was when I was listening to the actual story. Um, but I thought we were maybe heading into a situation where he was going to teach her how to land the ship. Ah. And then he would be the one who would be ejected from the ship. Yeah. I think that it would have taken more time to teach her to do that than, you know, that's probably the answer that they would have given if, if uh, Tom had come up with that one. Yeah. That's exactly what John W. Campbell would have said. There's not enough time to teach. That. <laughs> you can't just teach someone to land a ship. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that that's our episode then. Uh, a little, cool. little longer than normal, but it's some good discussion going on. So yeah, I like the discussion. Yeah. I, I, I really wish uh, Evan were here because I think he would have added a lot to it. Um, yeah, especially once so. we started talking about Man of Steel. Yes, <laughs> there's there's definitely a connection to him there. But I was also curious, like, did he? Because I, I know he appreciates good drama, and so my question that I'm having is. Did, was the drama good enough to pull him in? Because, right. you know, I I feel like I'm a sucker for this kind of thing. Plus, this is a story that fits into something that I've experienced in so many different ways. Like here, I'm, oh, I'm, how are they going to do it? You know, and so I'm I'm coming <laughs> at it. And, and for him to come into it cold, um, for it to be a cold equation, so to speak, for him, <laughs> uh, I'm curious. So maybe in a future well, episode, we'll get to hear from him if he does get around to watching it. So. Yeah. Cool. All right. Any final words then, Steve? Uh, my final word is um, plunge into space. <laughs> and my final word is thank you so much for listening. And hopefully as you're traveling, you don't have any stowaways who are throwing the weight of your ship off balance. But if you do, no matter what, I still want to wish you on your journey. Godspeed. Thanks for listening to Strangers and Aliens. We would like to hear from you. You can go to our website at strangersandaliens.com. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash strangersandaliens. You can email us, podcast at strangersandaliens.com, or you can send us a voicemail at 1-804-37-ALIEN. However you do it, we want to hear from you, and thanks for listening. Gorilla slapping a lizard in the face. <laughs>